You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Sharak Parikh, who is the Deputy Director for Counterproliferation at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Prior to this, he was the Director of Space Policy and Director of Defense Policy and Strategy at the National Security Council in the White House. He's also served with the National Intelligence Council under the ODNI, and as the Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Science and Technology. And he began his government career as an aerospace engineer for the National Air and Space Intelligence Center for the United States Air Force. So welcome, Sherrock. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us on SpyCast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Vince. So I want to ask you about your, your bio, because you have a degree in aerospace, aeronautical, and astronautical engineering from uh, a city out in Ohio where the two of us love discussing uh, the sports of you know your fetal, <laughs> your fetal Cleveland teams versus my even just as bad Miami teams. But my question, I imagine the most people that you went to school with, most of your classmates wanted to design spacecraft or wanted to be aerospace engineers for Boeing or somebody. What brought you into intelligence? Because I can't imagine it was you and everybody else. You probably went on kind of a bit of an anomaly from those that you went to school with. Yeah, so, I mean, right, like most people who love space, um, I grew up wanting to be an astronaut, right? Um, and then uh, also had ambitions of being an astronomer. And then eventually, just because of uh, uh, my ability to do well in high school for math and science, I went to aerospace engineering, got a degree. Um, and, yeah, I wanted, to build, I wanted to build satellites. As a matter of fact, the ironic thing about living, working at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, where we're primarily concerned with terrestrial-based things, is I didn't care about, uh, when I was growing up, to design terrestrially-based satellites. I wanted to design the next Galileo and right. Cassini. I wanted to develop those satellites that are going out to different orbits and, and explore planets and the solar system and the universe and beyond. And... Um, and uh, even my uh, senior thesis topic in my undergrad for aerospace engineering at the University of Cincinnati was actually focused on um, uh, designing a, a probe to go to uh, the outer planets. So uh, it came, and I interviewed with companies, some of the big major prime companies to develop satellites, um, develop uh, components on the space station. 
But it was really just up, in, up an hour north of uh, Cincinnati in Dayton, Ohio, where they came down to Cincinnati at a job fair and recruited for this organization at the time known as the National Air and Space, I'm sorry, National Air Intelligence Center, now the National Air and Space Intelligence Center. And, uh, you know, they offered me the lowest salary <laughs> uh, to live in Dayton, Ohio as opposed to opportunities to live in Sunnyvale, California and work there, uh, Palm Beach, uh, uh, Florida, uh, even up in uh, Connecticut. Nothing like exotic Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Clearly, and, yes. Uh, uh, but I will tell you that was uh, the best thing I ever did, best decision I've ever made. Uh, and part of it is I get to see things and work on things that have implications beyond uh, myself and uh, get to work on some really classified things, still get to run the passion of space. And it was literally the last line of the job description that said, uh, some international travel may be required. And I'm like, well, sign me up, yeah. you know, from growing up in the Midwest. And, uh, uh, you know, since then, it's been a, a fantastic ride. Well, if we ever discover uh, intelligent and hostile life on another planet, then you're uniquely qualified to do both Clearly. of these things uh, moving forward. Ready to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, I mean, but, I mean to, to the point of what attracted me also is not just the international travel, but... You get to apply your scientific and technical intelligence skills, your engineering skills that you learned in college, but almost do it backwards. And that's why they call a lot of the work that we do at, did at NASIC as reverse engineering. So, you know, you still get to apply your tradecraft towards that. So. Well, how, how has the tradecraft changed? As I went through your bio, there became, you know, a, a list of, since I did it in opposite order, it was reducing responsibility, but going the opposite direction, you, you know, your career you know, went from working at Dayton, Ohio, to working in a much larger the ODNI, and then at the White House, and then in a high-level director at NGA. That is going from kind of the basics of kind of entry-level intelligence work to now you are well. Your last job, you were talking to the President of the United States about space policy. So, you know, how has that evolved? How did it evolve? Was it a natural evolution, or did you find yourself? And questions, the question that this is really about career inflection points, right? When did you go from, this sounds like a kind of a neat career, to something like, I want to do this for a long time? Yeah, well, yeah I mean, this has been a fantastic ride, and it's not over yet, obviously. But it um, um, depends on how this interview goes, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, I thought living and working at uh, NASIC are some of the smartest scientific and technical um, intelligence analysts you'll find in the whole world. Uh, and they work on certain foreign uh, weapon systems, missile systems, almost their entire career. And they are the national experts for that. And, and to me, that was fascinating. I wanted to be the national expert on foreign space systems. And, and I was fine with that. And I was going to go through the ranks, and I accumulated responsibility. But um, what happened was then the National Intelligence Office for Science and Technology was talking about the need um, who works in the Office of Director of National Intelligence, about the need for increased space policy support. Um, and so quickly we created a space policy support office. So instead of me working in my cubicle, working on math and spreadsheets and so on and so forth, I eventually uh, um, came out here to D.C. on an almost monthly basis to be able to represent foreign space and counterspace threats. And I did that for several years. And the opportunity became uh, when I was asked to say, hey, would you like to be you know, um, you know, the NIO's deputy. And so the interview came, I got the job, and now instead of being a component of the space intelligence community, 
in, in de facto was leading the space intelligence community. So I would chair meetings with all the different space components from CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, National Security Agency, NGA, and all the service intelligence centers such as NASIC and Office of Naval Intelligence and so on and so forth. So I got to get the bigger picture of what was going on with respect to intelligence. But you're also the belly button for the national policy community at that level at DNI. So when there were meetings necessary to speak as a single voice um, on Capitol Hill or as a single voice for the intelligence community at the White House, I would be the belly button for that. And at that point, President Obama wanted to have a review of the national space policy. So I was one of the key uh, belly buttons back in 2010. Was there a single voice for space policy at that time? I mean, you talk about talking in a single voice, but it's rare to get a single voice coming out of the IC on just about any issue. True. Was space something that was so nascent, that was so new, and that was, you know, talk about a single voice on Russian tank capabilities, and you're not, you're going to have 50 different ideas from 50 different directions. But what made space unique enough that you could actually have a single voice coming out of the community? Well, I think it's, it, believe it or not, I mean, when you're talking at, L, at levels at like the National Security Council, um, especially at the White House, you know, the last thing that you want is eight intelligence organizations, you know, talking over each other to be, identify their issue. And then, you know, having sat in that role as the director of space policy, that becomes quite the cacophony at a mm-hmm. point, right? So you don't want that. You want the intelligence community to effectively say, look, you figure it out. And then you come here as a single voice to be able to portray what is the threat or what are the issues that you guys are facing at that point. So too often it's basically you only get one or two seats at the table. And so you have to pick the right person for that. And right. one of the reasons for the development of the DNI and for the National Intelligence Council is inherently that, to be the single voice for the community. And you don't always have to have um, consensus. You almost never do. Uh, but it's to be able to say, you know, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and obviously here's what we think along the way. Historically, policymakers have had not the toughest time in certain issues, right? Talking about the econ- you know, big picture economic strategy toward, let's say, a, a mere peer. You know, like the Chinese economy in 30 years is going to look like this. The vast majority of people in Congress get that idea. They have that basics, right? Or the Russians have this many million men under arms. That's not a hard concept for most policymakers to understand. You know, or even the new Russian tank is better than ours. That's really relatively straightforward. I don't care if you're a member of Congress from middle of nowhere, middle of nowhere. You get that basic concept. But there are very few members of Congress and very few people that have occupied the White House that have any kind of technical background, any kind of understanding of some of the stuff that you deal with on a day-to-day basis, not just space, right? I, I don't claim I've seen the right stuff a hundred times, but I don't claim to be an expert on space, you know, but I know more than a lot of people do. But I can imagine many of the people that you're dealing with at the policy-making level, the decision-making level, don't have a clue about any of this stuff. So how hard is it to lay down the basics to policymakers, number one? And number two, is it is it easier, perhaps, because they don't understand it so much they just trust you? <laughs> <laughs> Both great questions. So, uh, so first, uh, how hard is it? So for a long time, we have used space systems for defense intelligence purposes, right? But it's kind of like air. It's, you, you don't realize it's gone. <laughs> you, you don't realize how much you need it mm-hmm. until it's gone. Right, and so it's, it's kind of take it for granted along the way, and so you know there's all these other pressing issues, and that's fine. But you know, as the intelligence community has 
over the past decade plus now um, warned about the threats to our space systems from, from potential adversaries. Um, what has happened is we've gotten more and more attention. But even as as watershed of a moment as January of 2007 when the Chinese launched a missile from the ground and destroyed a satellite hundreds of kilometers in orbit causing thousands of pieces of debris which certainly got a lot of people's attention to include President Bush's attention and most if not all members of Congress um, just a very um, poignant event even that moment while we had this uplift of interest in, in, in surge a lot of speeches, a lot of testimony, a lot of moving around, a lot didn't change because suddenly the next issue came and the next issue came. So in 2012, we had the opportunity to engage the president again. Now, mind you, this is five years after the Chinese anti-satellite test. We had the opportunity to engage President Obama uh, on this issue, and he took interest. And uh, I wouldn't say he drew out a long policy. He had already released the national space policy, which said all the right words. But part of a policy position is not just to write the policy. That's the easy part. Mm -hmm. The hard part is actually implementing the policy. So we had him sign off on the policy in 2010. We caught his attention in 2012 uh, because of a lot of activities going around um, the world, uh, particularly thanks to the intelligence community being able to bring this to his attention. We had meetings with him and basically very quite simply he said I need a plan with the budget I need a plan with a budget to do this and we ended up moving forward on uh, developing a plan for him with associated money and now it took it took the better part of a year or two to get all this stuff together because you're talking about defense intelligence policy but the bottom line was what we and I and, and, and the entire interagency tried to explain and this goes to your question about explaining policy mm -hmm. It's not the fact of a sensor is going to be out. It's not the fact that a satellite is going to be attacked, right? It's the fact of what's the implication if you don't have that satellite. You're not going to have indications and warning for your presidential daily brief. The warfighter is not going to be able to know what's on the other side of the mountain or be able to communicate with uh, headquarters, not be able to navigate, you know, using GPS and so on and so forth. The real-life implications that policymakers and, and, and lawmakers understand Right? And that's, that's going back to your tank analogy. They mm -hmm. understand those things. They don't understand space like we would. And so you need to bring it back literally to the earth and be able to say, here's the implications right. from a day-to-day -day perspective. How much, you obviously, NGA is under DOD, and so you deal with the broader defense situation, but how much are you thinking about what's happening in science overall, what's happening in space overall? The U.S. budget is reducing funding for basic science, NASA's getting its budget slashed, our ability to put stuff into orbit has been reduced somewhat with the space shuttle program being retired. We're, we're counting on, you know, every time SpaceX tries something, everyone's watching like, ooh, can this be the future? How much do you have to think about long-term, how much does NGA, how much does the IC that deals with space science have to think about the broader, big picture space policy for the United States to do their jobs? Well, all of those issues are important. Now, space shuttle is a, is a, you know, that was a human space flight related issue, so that doesn't nearly, uh, that, you know, since the, pretty much, uh, since uh, Challenger really hasn't been a mm -hmm. defense intelligence related, you know, issue or anything like that. So, really, but when you're thinking about space launch, the, the, when you think about any space technology, the very fun, interesting thing about the space community 
is that the boundaries are porous, right? Technology that's developed for civil applications have defense applications, and those applications have intelligence applications, which have commercial applications. And so there, there's a lot of, you have to be able to pay attention to that. If I don't have ready access to space launch, for instance, you know, you're referencing SpaceX, uh, United Launch Alliance, Blue Origin, Orbital ATK, a lot of companies launching national security payloads, or plan to. Um, I don't have my satellites in space to do my geoing, right? Right. So I am paying attention to that. Uh, I am paying attention to these new startup companies, whether backed by venture capital firms or by billionaires, to be able to say, hey, how can I apply that? And it's not just what's in space. Uh, at NGA, for instance, you know, we're really focused on what's happening out in Silicon Valley and Seattle and other places about how are they using artificial intelligence, automation, and so on and so forth. How can I use that data Right, or the data processing techniques that they're using for social media and whatnot. How could I apply that towards, you know, you know, just petabytes of data that I'm getting on a daily basis for geospatial intelligence or intelligence writ large? Right. Right. Yeah, I think of something as technologically advanced as putting things into space. Is I mean, I think we kind of take that for granted as though it's easy. You know, because we've been watching it, but every time there's an accident or something, we're reminded that this is not a natural thing for humans to do. But it's so heavily dependent on emerging technology, not just in AI and other things like that. But how much do you need to pay attention to what's happening in bigger science? I, I think of, you know, maybe the next big thing in human intelligence will be a longer-lasting miniature battery, because then all the gadgets that don't need wires anymore can last. You know, you can have a listening device that goes for 20 hours because you have a small miniature lithium battery, et cetera, right? So, but human intelligence is still basically the way that it was back in with the caveman days. There are opportunities, certainly, in space science and in, you know, all the, the things that go around it that could be changing exponentially, at a, not in a linear pace, but an exponential pace where you know, like with these companies, like SpaceX and others are doing, where there's a game-changing technology that affects not just us, but everybody else. How much does that play into your kind of day-to-day -day thinking about space? So, from a, I'll speak from a geospatial intelligence yeah. perspective, for instance. So, historically, we have had, um, and still do, have very capable large space systems that have you know, the ability to provide us the strategic intelligence that we need as well as be able to provide warfighters the operational intelligence that they need from a day-to-day -day operation, mission-by-mission -mission basis, and so on and so forth. What is unique is now, you know, we don't only have a handful of these systems that we can rely on now. We also have commercial companies, all right? Uh, historically, our big partner has been a company called Digital Globe, uh, who provides sub-meter resolution uh, capability. What's interesting now is that even Digital Globe is having competition now from other smaller companies um, who have different value propositions, right? Instead of high resolution, uh, I want to take a picture of the entire landmass of the Earth on a daily basis. Uh, I want to be able to revisit any target on the Earth every five to ten minutes, right? What can you do with that? that's different than this. So we are looking at all these different types of capabilities that are coming on there. And yes, when it comes to technologies as well, we work close with our one of our uh, major mission partners, the National Reconnaissance Office, who design and operate our intelligence satellites on orbit. And you know, we and they are looking at these foundational technologies where you know, what is the next generation optics that could potentially do this? What's the next generation of small satellite system uh, that could augment our capability, uh, potentially offset 
current capabilities for future capabilities, um, or even from a, a you know space warfighting perspective, uh, be resiliency mechanisms uh, in case you know we lose one of our assets right. or something like that. Well, I, I, you may only be able to touch on the surface of this, but I'm thinking beyond optics too, where you're looking at some of the mass. Okay. categories where you're putting different payloads and packages inside these satellites that are that could change on it you know an MIT scientist could figure out some new way of looking at the world or someone overseas in China and those are things that could dramatically change the way we do intelligence it doesn't have to be something that you're constantly paying attention to oh yeah absolutely yeah it, it, I was just using the GeoN example but it's yeah. it's, it's, it's Mazin it's, it's communications technology the fact that now you can develop there's a technology for communications where uh, you don't need the you know the typically larger parabolic type antenna on satellites you can actually use flat planar antenna, antenna that can then direct the waves of uh, the communication wave one direction or another right it's mass savings it's it's uh, space saving and so on and so forth so yeah, every one of those technologies, uh, we continue to evaluate, test, uh, go in partnerships with private industry and academia, and um, you know, some of those, maybe a lot of those, actually then do make them up up on orbit. Well, you've touched upon this, but let's kind of dig down a little bit about why space is important for national security. I want to ask this in a general sense, but I also want to ask in a specific sense about your job. As I mentioned, you're the deputy director for counterproliferation at NGA. So, in a general sense. You know, where does space come into play with broader American national security? But then specifically, because counterproliferation is in the news, right? You know, the Iran deal, or, you know, being we're pulling out of the Iran deal. North Korea, potentially, who knows what tomorrow is going to look like. But that's, gonna, that's not going anywhere. You know, and it's not just proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's now looking at Syria and their use of chemical weapons and Russia and everybody else. So, again, in a general sense, can you talk about the importance of space for national security, but then in a more specific sense, talk about the importance of space for counterproliferation operations? Yeah, so, I mean, in a very general sense, right, I mean, our national security apparatus is it heavily relies on space systems. Um, and this was uh, most, you know, the, the inflection point, so to speak, many people say, uh, was the first Gulf War back in the early 90s, where... You know, we were able to use GPS for operational warfighting purposes. We were able to use uh, and, uh, ISR capabilities from space, right, for operations, not just for strategic intelligence of what's going to happen three, five, ten years from now, but actually what's going to happen three, five, ten hours from now, if not sooner. Um, so, and we use that to communicate, navigate, warn, collect intelligence. A lot of that is based around, you know, our space systems, and, and, and every day we're kind of getting better and better. And the thing is, though, is... We're not the only ones doing this anymore. Oh, they say, isn't everybody else getting better and better at this also? Well, exactly, right? And, and, and it's not, it's not, it's never been a secret about the, the benefits of space. I mean, the reason that we went into space in the first place for all these military and intelligence missions was because space has an inherent value that you cannot achieve in the air or on the ground, right? You get global coverage um, on a routine basis, and if you get you get persistence if you're out in the geosynchronous orbit. So. A lot of countries are figuring this out. Commercial companies are figuring this out. And so it, it just becomes part of the way that we do everything, right? Like I said, navigation, communication, surveillance, and so on and so forth. So so to that point about counterproliferation, right? So you have weapons of mass destruction. you got chemical weapons facilities, biological weapons, nuclear weapon facilities. You have proliferation, arms transfer, um, all kinds of missions, uh, missile uh, and, and conventional weapon developments, and of course space and counter space development, all these types of things are um, 
elements that my office uh, pays attention to here. And so, yeah, if you're looking at uh, an, uh, a country that is developing chemicals, uh, chemical weapons or nuclear weapon capabilities or deployment mechanisms for WMD, we're going to pay attention to the research and development of, of those kind of capabilities and, you know, how are they going to be deployed? We have to know where they are to be able to provide intelligence to policymakers, diplomats, warfighters, and so on and so forth. But similarly, it's also to be able to help with verification regimes, right? So if, if we should go into uh, agreements with countries, North Korea and others, about saying, yes, we uh, agree to uh, disarm, then we need to be able to have uh, mechanisms to do verification. As a matter of fact, right, that's, I mean, you're the, you're the S&TI historian, right? I mean, that's why we had strategic intelligence systems uh, was for strategic intelligence of development yeah. and also part of the intelligence community's role is to provide verification uh, capabilities and whether you're talking about START or, you know, its predecessors, you know, we use all of our sensors to be able to make sure that we verify. So depending on what the policymakers' needs are, whether it's for proliferation purposes or for verification and or verification right. purposes. Right? So you can obviously can't talk in a classified context, but maybe historically in a declassified context about the, the question maybe some people might have is, well, there hasn't been an above-ground nuclear test for decades. How is a satellite with an optic lens in space going to do any kind of verification or counter-proliferation work? And you've used the word sensor, uh, and I think that's a hint at it. But can you talk a little more generally uh, in a kind of a maybe historic case about how mass and technologies or others are used uh, to do verification and or getting ahead of the game uh, and, and looking at wannabe nations creating their own weapon systems? So, yeah, right. There hasn't been above ground nuclear um, detonations. Got it. But nuclear detonations are still pretty big. <laughs> Right, and so that can cause um, other features to uh, be able to be discerned. Right, uh, whether it's a you know a cave or or you may not see the actual thing, but you can see all the things that support the thing. Right, right, and so that's part of our role as especially geospatial intelligence analysts, signals intelligence analysts, human intelligence analysts. Sometimes you look, you can't see the actual thing, and so what we're doing is we're creating this big puzzle. We're getting all these pieces of the puzzle, right? And maybe what we're doing is we're creating the boundary of the puzzle so we can then interpolate and extrapolate as necessary to be able to infer, yes, if all these things happen, that must be a chemical weapons facility. If all these things happen, that must be a nuclear weapons uh, detonation and so on and so forth. So whether we're using you know, measurement and signature uh, intelligence sensors that are the sniffers mm -hmm. for these types of capabilities or we as NGA are the eyes of the nation or NSA listening in on capabilities, we're trying to, with our all-source agencies, then trying to put all those pieces together to be, provide, again, policymakers, warfighters, diplomats, operation, operational, operational um, uh, customers, basically our best assessment. Of, of what's going on, right? So let me, let me talk about the best assessment because you you did brief directly President Obama as you talked about on some of these space issues, and, and you've dealt with other policymakers at this level. And we've already talked about maybe they don't know as much as they perhaps could or should about this. But I'm wondering how that conversation goes. How how is that that kind of dissemination of that briefing? Are there good questions? Are there right questions? Is it like anything else? Um, or kind of going back to that idea of well, you're the expert, you know, you let us know. Well. It, there is certainly, um, you know, when I was at the NSC, there wasn't a space council, 
Um, so often for national security space-related measures, it's just one person. So uh, you would hope that they would have the trust in that individual. And, you know, my successor has had a lot of trust as well, and I would hope that would continue forward. But, yes, when it gets to a level of the president, you know, sometimes – in this case, one case, uh, you literally have to explain rocket science, uh, <laughs> you know, to the president of the United States. And, you know, you know, case in point, uh, the Russians, you know, we have been using Russian rocket engines to um, launch national security payloads since, uh, you know, for better part of almost two decades now. Uh, there was, you want to go in there with the reason why did, why did we do this, right? What was the historical context? And that was the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, what has been the benefits of these capabilities? What are the current issues? And what are the implications of this? And right, So that goes back to the implications element where you're telling the president, look, you know, the bottom line is, is a lot of our capabilities that get launched into space are the capabilities that you know, benefit you as the president for nuclear command and control reasons or for GPS and or uh, ISR capabilities. However, here is a potential way forward that we need to now develop some policy prescription on. Um, and often, you know, it's not the president's going to sit down or any senior policymaker and then all of a sudden write, you know, a 10-page memo. He's going to rely and trust on you to be able to do that. When you're at the White House at an NSC level, you're not doing this by yourself. You have the entire um, space interagency there to support you. Um, um, and whether it's, you'll have the Department of Defense, Intelligence Community, State Department, NASA, Federal Aviation uh, Administration, and many, many others um, who have to agree to what you write uh, to get the president's approval. Right. Right. So uh, you just have to be slow and, and, and meticulous on those types of things sometimes. It's literally rocket science. It is literally rocket yeah. science. So you, you mentioned nuclear command and control, ISR, GPS. I mean, those are just a few of the reasons that space is insanely important. For national security, which also makes it an insanely juicy target up there for potential adversaries, and vice versa, right? Yep. I mean, that's that's if you want to win a great power war against a pure near peer adversary in the future, you're probably going to have not you, meaning the United States, but anyone is probably going to have to deal with space assets to either knock them out, to blind them, to do something about them because they're just far too important to not do anything with. We hope know that. I assume we do. Um, so what kind of threats are there? out? We talked about China in 2007. Um, I, I'm assuming we paid very close attention to that, and it's not like it's a surprise. I think ASAT technology has been discussed since the 70s, perhaps. So it's not like this came completely out of the blue. Um, are there things that we're doing to plan for that? Again, you can't tell us everything, but kind of in the basic sense, can you talk a little bit about how we're trying to mitigate the dangers out so, there to our satellite systems. So let's pretend you're the president for a second. You just got an intelligence report that says that this, all this stuff is happening. So I like pretending that I'm the president. There you go. So, uh, exactly. This is fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, what's interesting is maybe in, in, in touching on your your love of history for a second, and maybe we should go backwards for a second here, right? You're right. Um, you know, we and the Soviet Union have had space systems up on orbit for quite some time. Um, through the Cold War, we used it for mainly strategic purposes, right, for nuclear command and control, for indications and warning of, of, of you know, advanced conventional weapon development as well as, um, you know, strategic weapons and so on and so forth, right? So, and yes, both the Soviet Union and the United States pursued the development of anti-satellite weapons back in the Cold War. Again, the context of that was more based around nuclear war mm -hmm. because that's what we were primarily 
using our space systems for. So we pretty much, since the inception of the space age, even with the development of those anti-satellite capabilities, operated in space as if it were a sanctuary. So we operate in space as a sanctuary, so you design you know, for your operating type of environment. Fast forward to the uh, Gulf War, now um, we start using space for conventional war uh, purposes. And we, be, we were good, and we have only become just outstanding um, being able to use space systems. As you've noticed, as have others, um, we've come to use that for almost every operation around the world that we do today. So I think the term you used was juicy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, can't translate that into other languages, but I have to imagine that has been translated to other languages. So particularly Russia and China. Right? So recently we, uh, the intelligence community talked about the fact that you know, both Russia and China are developing anti-satellite weapons. Um, and they are to counter our military effectiveness because we are good using our space systems. Um, they're developing both destructive capabilities, so capabilities to destroy our satellites permanently, non-reversible, as well as reversible capabilities. And I'm happy to define some of those weapon systems if you'd like. Um, not only that, but now these days, it's not, you know, maybe a decade ago when the Chinese did their ASAT test, it's a research and development thing going on. But now these days, um, China and Russia are reforming their military uh, to increase their focus on increasing operational forces um, designed to attack our space systems, but in coordination with all their other services. So what they're doing in the sea, on land, cyber, in space, all coordinated. So we see that happening right now. Um, and, you know, Chinese, that ASAT test in 2007, we actually see them doing some operational testing, uh, uh, operational force deployments of, of those capabilities. And not just that, but there's also activity going on as we speak, experimental activity that we think is counterspace related um, in orbit. Right? And, 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 that, and that's an interesting thing about this. When most people think about conflicts in space, uh, maybe naively but passionately, you go thinking Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and Star Trek, etc. But the vast majority of the threats to our space systems start on the Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, there are orbital ASAT systems, and we need to be able to track, you know, if that's the direction, you know, adversaries will go, we'll have to be able to monitor what's going on there, and we're putting resources to that. But a lot of what we do, especially like at NGA, you have to keep track of all those things that are happening on the ground, right? And whether it's missiles coming from the ground, jammers on the ground, um, lasers from the ground. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. 
Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Policy-wise, I, I wonder how much has been thought about. You may not be able to talk about this, but in 19, let's say, 86, if the Soviets knocked down our command and control satellites, or our early warning satellites, we would launch everything that we had. That would be the, 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 the advice given to Ronald Reagan by everyone would be the only reason to do this was to blind us before a full first strike. So the response would be to let's get them before they get their missiles off the ground. I'm wondering, is there a trigger today, and or should there be a trigger today, talking the hypothetical, about, because there's news stories about the Chinese or others trying to blind our satellites with lasers, trying to mess with them with radio, trying to do things like that. At what point should there be, you don't have to talk about real policy, you can kind of talk hypothetically from Chirac point of view, at what point should there be a trigger for us going, oh shit, there's more to this than just messing around, there's more than this than just testing things, harassing, that there is an actual a policy now in place. Forget China. Let's say Country X is not launching missiles but using other technology to knock out our GPS satellites or early warning satellites or command and control stuff. And it's maybe it's reversible, but it's enough harassment that we could see that in the future there could be a good day or two where they could just blind us. Is that as much a red line as a massive cyber attack that takes out the East Coast power grid? Or is that as much of a red line as crossing the Fulda Gap into West Germany during the 1980s? I mean, at what point does space become another trigger for a potential war? That's a very hard policy yeah, question. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a very good one, too. Um, you know, it, it's one of these things where, you know, think about this from a, a warfighting domain perspective. Land warfare has been around for millennia, right? Naval war warfare has been around for centuries. Um, air warfare has been around decades, probably almost a century now, right? And along the way, often it's two, two strategic, maybe three, uh, who have f adversaries who have similar capabilities who can then develop norms of behavior, transparency and confidence building measures. I wouldn't want to call it a red line, but since you use the term, right, you know, you know, basically the gray zone where, hey, you're getting right. a little bit too close, right? Um, and, and that, to a certain extent, has developed, especially in land and, and, and naval doctrine. I think in the world of cyber and space, particularly cyber at right now, as, as I'm sure you're aware, well aware, we're, we're trying to figure that out, right. right? Because this isn't just, by the way, um, the U.S. government versus a strategic near peer. You are also involving allies' capabilities. You're also involving commercial capabilities that also rely heavily. Uh, our society relies heavily on these types of space systems. And, you know, the bottom line is, is um, at what point is too too far? Right. Right. And and, and so that's it's just a hard question at this well, point. Well, not right? to get too IR theory on you, but, I mean, deterrence in all those other aspects has has depended on the adversary knowing how you're going to react. You're not going Dr. Strangelove, are you? No, no, but the, uh, I, the idea behind this was that you know what's going to happen if you cross that line, right? Your adversary knows. So if the Russians launch an ICBM at us, they know what the response is going to be. 
right? If you if you cross the Fulda Gap, you know what the response is going to be. The same with the, if you invade someone's territorial waters with a gunship, you're probably going to get shot at. Cyber, they're trying to define that as quickly as they possibly can. Space has been around a lot longer than cyber has. I mean, to kind of push back a little bit, I mean, cyber is relatively, we went into space in the 1960s. We've had joint operations with the Soviets in space, the Soyuz Apollo stuff. We've had some potential, you know, disagreements about space policy over the years. Are we any closer to everybody kind of understanding what everybody else is going to react to if the Chinese actually shoot down one of our satellites or if, you know, vice versa? So there are so there planning is in works right now, right? I wouldn't say that there is a definitive at this point, but there are options on the table. Well, the Space Marines. Is uh, the Space Marines. Uh, <laughs> clearly, the Space Corps is here to save the day. Um, so the um, no, it, it, but hold on, I'm going to push back on your pushback for a second here. The, the difference on cyber, okay? Yes, space has been around longer than cyber, right? But there were inherent. Um, you know, I wouldn't call red lines again, but there were inherent areas where we knew back in the Cold War about when we felt we would actually be attacked with uh, Soviet anti-satellite weapons, which was effectively around a nuclear conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing conventional. So, again, we operated in that domain effectively as a sanctuary. And it wasn't until the Chinese ASAT test and maybe a little bit plus or minus from there that really it got the whole community and specifically the White House and the Congress to pay attention to these types of things, whereas in the cyber world, because of the financial transactions, because of the cyber crimes, because of um, you know cyber you know espionage and so on and so forth, a lot of that has been happening so fast mm-hmm. because of the parallel development of the uh, of the information age uh, or the internet age at this point that that has forced that community to have to ramp forward because there is more of the offensive defensive cyber measure countermeasure already going on in that. Whereas in space right now and those things associated with space on the ground, those are in research and development. Those are just starting to get deployed. They haven't really been employed too much outside of jamming type of capabilities and in, in some of the dramatic events of the Chinese ASAT test from 2010 or 2007, and then they repeated it in mm-hmm. 14. But we haven't gotten to that point yet where we're actually really doing this. So that's provided a little bit more room and cushion to have that, you know, right. uh, theoretical uh, debate about what would we do. Well, let me ask then, to me, the natural progression from that question is, so what are we doing to try to mitigate a potential war that extends into space? Like, like what, what is the IC doing to prevent, because if, it, if there's not a clear, you know, response that acts as a deterrent, if everyone doesn't know what line they can't cross... What can we do to mitigate some of the dangers to our systems? Okay, so first, let me, let me hold the IC part off to the end okay. because uh, that's clearly the community that I'm in, and there's a lot to talk about that one in itself. But let me talk just maybe more broadly speaking. So there's two halves, right? First, we want to basically strengthen the, the safety and the stability and security of space, right? We don't want a war to extend into space, you know, we, we like what we're doing in space, and uh, I think other countries like that as well, commercial partners like that. We like to see the environment, you know, preserved for, for all these different applications. Space has been militarized since the day one, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily uh, should be weaponized and so on and so forth. But that's, you know, that's happening, unfortunately, right now. Um, so we have to pay attention to that if an adversary is developing those capabilities. So we want to do things like 
develop transparency and confidence building measures. We want to do deterrence, whatever that may entail. It doesn't have to be a space deterrence thing. It would be something that happens on the ground. It could be an offset mechanism. Um, you know, potentially looking at legal regimes. Right now, the only real legal regime with respect to space security that the world abides by is the Outer Space Treaty, signed you know, decades and decades ago. And the only thing it bans, the only thing it bans, really, is placing weapons of mass destruction in space. Nukes in space. Yeah, yeah that's it. Right? Technically speaking, everything else is on the table. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, you have to look at all these things. So we... You want to do things left of boom, so to speak, to try to prevent that from happening. But as we see all these developments of counter space capabilities happening, we, the defense community, we, the intelligence community, have to be prepared should a war extend into space. So what are we doing, right? So some of the things is we're looking at um, building more resilient space systems. We didn't have to, right, right. before. But now we have to consider looking at those kind of capabilities. We're looking at developing operations in space, whether it's looking at different orbits, um, different uh, tactics and techniques to move satellites around, um, defensive options, um, right? I talked about other domains where you have naval domain, air domain. You have protection systems around bigger, more strategic systems. Right, so, I mean, you're thinking about stuff like, I'm going to let this guy go by because... This is the one drawback. The new museum has a nice kind of soundproof D type thing. So when you're talking about kind of countermeasures in space, are you thinking about the same thing that a fighter aircraft may use as kind of chaff and flares and things? Weapon systems are using radar or IR or thing like that to try to spoof missiles or, you know, thrusters that help the, the actual satellite move out of the way of being shot at. I mean, this is kind of getting into kind of the Star Wars realm in this case. Um, that's the great part of being in the intelligence community right now. It, it depends on what the threat is, yeah. right? So if, if it is a missile screaming at you, well, then you need to get out of the way fast, right? Um, on the other hand, if it's something that's going to, you know, sneak and snuggle next to you in the darkness of space, well, then you need to have better space situation awareness and indications and warning to be able to say, yes, something is approaching, um, a few years ago, the Department of Defense launched a satellite pre previously classified, now unclassified by just mission, that's called GSAP, Geosynchronous Space Situational Awareness Program. And we have four of them on orbit right now. And they're basically going around the geosynchronous orbit looking for bad behavior in space. Kind of like an AWACS in space. Just well, kind of it's like not doing the command and control. It's, right, just, oh, yeah. it's, just, it's just looking at this point. But yeah, right, you, you need to have all this type of awareness to be able to provide then you know, the best options. And if it's something that's happening now, then you have to do tactics in orbit now. If it's we as the intelligence community say, hey, this is going to happen three, five, ten years from now, then you have the time to develop uh, capabilities to some of the measures that you talked about to say, yeah, we can counter that at this point. But, yeah, nothing's really off the table um, because these are such nascent uh, uh, capabilities at this point that we just have to keep monitoring. But it's also, all right, so they got us, Okay. Uh, we tried to move out of the way, but they got us. We need to be able to develop reconstitution capabilities. How do I rapidly launch something into space? How do I get it into the right orbit? How do we get that data right back down in the data flow that I just recently lost? Right. So I, and, and it's not just us anymore. It's our international partners that mm -hmm. we can rely on. It's commercial partners that we can rely on. Uh, the, the DARPA is developing a, a responsive launch initiative right now as well 
working with industry to say, hey, give us your best capability because we, um, as a government, need it. So that's kind of like from a space-based perspective. But then also, it's our foundational capabilities. We need to be able to improve our awareness of what's happening in space and also what's happening on the ground that can affect space. Um, look at better organization and management. You talked about the space marines. All right, you know, there's, there's a debate between Department of Defense and the, and the Hill on whether or not a space force or a space corps is needed. Uh, out in Colorado Springs, uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, um, former Deputy Secretary of Defense and uh, Director of National Intelligence developed a National Space Defense Center uh, to be able to bring all this kind of stuff together. Um, and then finally, and then I'll go back to the intelligence community piece, is we need to be better in the intelligence community. All right, so if I might gloat about the space intelligence community for a second here, um, you know, what are we doing, right? We are trying to figure out what all these capabilities are. And I'm not sure if your listeners have heard the different levels of intelligence, you know, phase one, phase two, and phase three intelligence, but we're doing that in the space intelligence community. So, you know, phase three intelligence is what, when I was at NASIC, where you're doing scientific and technical intelligence, you were looking at the performance and characteristics of that anti-satellite missile. How high can it go? How far can it go? Right? What's its, you know, field of view? You're trying to figure out all that technology. So then you can give that to a future, um, you know, satellite developer and say, you need to look out for these types of things. What we do a lot at NGA is what's called phase two and phase one intelligence, where you're looking at pattern of life behavior. Where do they go when they do this? How do they do that? How many are out there? And so on and so forth. And then there's phase one intelligence, which is basically time dominant um, intelligence, which is a lot of the combatant commands, uh, the regional combatant commands, as well as strategic command, where literally every day I need to know, you know, are there that many planes on right. the tarmac? Are there that many jammers, you know, over here? Are there that many missiles over there? And so that's kind of the, the breadth of that community. And then you also then employ all the different disciplines of intelligence, from signals intelligence, human intelligence, geospatial intelligence, open source data we use, and then, of course, Mazint as well. Um, and then yeah, so the, uh, the order to knock down our satellites is going to be something that could either be picked up by SIGINT, it could be something that can be picked up for a human intelligence source, so you might actually get the warning from somewhere else in the IC. It may not be, you know, oh shit, there's a missile on the way. You may know the intentions a couple of weeks ahead of time because it's something the CIA gets you or something NSA brings you. Right, and, and that's why you have that's why you have all source analysts who are there to be able to integrate all this information together, you know, CIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and the combatant commands who are able to sit there and go, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to be listening for a signal over here, but that signal is not happening. But my geospatial guys are telling me it's sitting there right in front of me. What's going on, mm -hmm. right? And so you can bring other types of, uh, you know, capabilities to bear. And, you know, from a geospatial perspective, it's, it's, it's self-serving for us at NGA to want to do space intelligence because we use space for geospatial intelligence. And if we don't provide good enough intelligence of what's, threatening our space systems, not only do we lose our ability to do the space intelligence mission, but we lose our ability to do the counterproliferation mission, you know, counter IED mission, you know, all the different missions that we have across the entire, you know, mission set. It's called the National Intelligence Priority Framework. Um, we can't do that. Uh, or so, it's severely, severely hindered. So is there a disagreement about who should be doing space? within the government, within the community? 
I mean, you talk about, you know, NGA, you depend on space. Obviously, NRO is, you know, heavily invested in space. Um, but people are having conversations about changing the way space policy, whether it's a, we all laughed at the space marine thing, but at least that's a conversation about how do we do space differently moving into the future. I mean, is there going to be a possibility of the most important part of kind of that organization and certainly NRO of controlling what's going on in space and being the primary uh, customer is the wrong word, but the primary user of space technology being sent somewhere else or being bureaucratized in a place that you have no control over, you know, or uh, being even more bastardized than perhaps it had been in the past. Uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's a very relevant topic right now. Um, and the intelligence community side of things, you know, the, the prime uh, developer, acquirer, designer, and operator of space systems is in the National Reconnaissance Office. We, the remain, you know, the other intelligence agencies, NSA, you know, and NGA particularly, DIA, CIA, and others are the users of the data and services that come off of those space programs there. NRO is unique because they have the ability to, again, acquire, uh, budget and acquire, uh, train cadre for operations, develop uh, the IC policies to be able to use those capabilities. So it's all centrally located, you know, in a single organization. The argument that the Congress is currently pushing with respect on the Def- Department of Defense side is it's, it's very um, disparate across the Department of Defense. You know, some entities use are heavily focused on acquisition. There's so many different people and layers that you have to go through to be able to get approval for capabilities. Acquisitions too slow. Budgets are too you know uh, too much. Not too much. Uh, you know, it's just uh, uh, sometimes they go over budget on some issues, and so that be- becomes a large uh, question about should there be on the DoD side a, a central point of contact, right. not just the responsibility of of space, but the authority to be able to do something about that, because. In the, in the NRO, it goes to the director of the NRO, who often has the final say on decisions, um, working as a, both Title 10 and Title 50 DOD and intelligence community-related issues. And I think that's what the Congress is looking for, but, you know, that's still, a, that's still a, an ongoing saga right. more, more than anything. So what, what do you see in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Like, what, looking forward, is, is this going to be another... You know, domain space of warfare. I mean, it, we're, you've introduced it as a possible place that a future war could be fought. Um, but I think that would demand a great power conflict. Or maybe I'm wrong, and that's the question I'm asking you. Is there a chance that there's an upstart country that as things become cheaper, as the technology becomes better understood? I mean, I'm thinking about the kind of the the advent of nuclear weapons and how they proliferated in the decades after people understood them, how they became cheaper, more less ex- less expensive. You know, you do have some, certainly there's some small European countries that are just launching stuff up into space. I mean, are we going to see an Al-Qaeda space program in the future or an ISIS space program? Or is there going to be a, you know, the fact that North Korea is now seemingly developing long-range missiles means that the next step would be a, a North Korean space program. I mean... Well, they've already called out a North Korean space program. Yes, oh. yes. So, But I, I think... You know, the answer is yes, and and then a yes, however. So, yeah, because, I mean, high schools, Vince, high schools are developing CubeSats that are being launched into space, right? Right. I was using crayons, I think, you know, at that time (laughs) to to draw little boxes and call them spaceships and stuff like that. So it's 
it's fascinating to see just how how proliferated this the, the general element of the technology is at this point. Things that high school and college students are developing these days that are, are things that we developed, you know, with extraordinary budgets and extraordinary people just a couple of decades ago. So it's it's fascinating on the technology front of things, right? But you don't need to have a space launch vehicle to operate a space system. You can purchase that commercially. There's, I think, over a dozen countries that launch things into space now. Most of them, I think, are looking commercial. Similarly, you don't need a space system in orbit to use stuff in space because so much of space is now available commercially, right? Uh, and, and not just your traditional imagery and communications, but even space. Uh, Surveilling things and moving in space, space situation awareness, uh, commercial capabilities, um, unique uh, position navigation and timing capabilities. Um, so there's, you can just buy the space service, and then just integrate it on the ground. And whether you want to call it your, you know, uh, insert country here, space agency, even though you don't own or operate a single thing in space, you're still using as much space services um, because it continues to proliferate. Uh, in the commercial realm. So, one, more countries will continue to use space. Countries that do use space will continue to use it even more and more as it integrates not just into society but into their national security apparatus. Uh, three, look, I'm looking for the counter-argument, um, but a war, the, 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 the data points point to, you know, conventional war extending into space. And we're doing everything we can to prepare for that and be able to defend our systems for something like that. So as adversaries continue to do R&D and deployment of these capabilities, then that's something that we're going to have to look out for. Um, you know. And then on the space exploration side of things here, I just think another thing, it's not, this isn't a national security thing, but it is a passion going back to the beginning for a second, right? What we do to explore space, you know, the work that we do in low Earth orbit, the fact that well over a decade, um, and then well, well over a decade now, we've had, you know, you know, Americans and, and Russians and Europeans and Japanese and Canadians and others um, on the space station. I mean, space is going to become increasingly internationalized, uh, even more so than it is today, not just on the civil front, but on the defense and intelligence front here. So anybody who's looking to come into this career field, um, whether it's space intelligence to be able to play with some of the most sensitive data and make, you know, solve mysteries and puzzles and do something bigger than yourself, or uh, to work in the civil world, you know, we are, we are at an inflection point of space because it's become so permeated that in the next five to ten years, um, I'm not even sure I'm going to recognize um, what it is anymore because it's just changing so fast at this point. Well, it almost goes beyond the whole intelligence science to almost a management situation where getting an MBA in space, at this, you know, to be able to manage all the different stuff going on. I mean, it's not everyone's not at the same orbit, but there's so much out there now that there are, like you said, entire groups that are focusing on kind of air traffic control in space that kind of seems like it needs to be someone with an MBA kind of figure out how yeah. that works. I don't know if you were paying attention to the news or not, but uh, Space Council just announced that the Department of Commerce will be responsible for what's known as space traffic management, which is inherently a form of air traffic control for space. Okay. So, yes, you will need to have understanding of business operations um, and, and have an MBA for this. Similarly, legal regimes in space, there is a, uh, you know, a 
you know, people talk about, you know, I want to launch a lawyer into space. In this case, I need a space <laughs> lawyer, right? So uh, um, there is, uh, you know, what happens when I uh, get to an asteroid? Do I get to claim right. that as my own? Um, if I'm on the moon and I find a water reservoir in the next company that comes there, do they get to use the same reservoir? We haven't even agreed to that on Earth. I mean, the, the people are talking now about the melting of the Arctic where there's all those natural resources underneath that are all bordered by Denmark and Canada and the United States and Russia and kind of the free-for-all and how are we going to do the legal issues about an area on Earth that's never been free of ice and it's going to be very soon. I can't imagine asteroid mining or other things like that and how that legal ramification is going to be. It, right, exactly, right? And, that, and that's the beautiful part. I mean, not just about, you know, you know offensive and defensive space, you know, trying to fig- figure this stuff out. Stuff that's never been figured out before. It's the legal regimes. You have the opportunity to figure out. Um, I'll tell you, there is a great need. I, you know, my science, technology, engineering background. Certainly, I, I'm very proud of that, and the people that I've worked with. But I'll tell you, some of the hardest jobs and some of the smartest people are those space lawyers, those business people who understand how you can do this, political scientists, uh, how you can cooperate in this international regime now. Um, and what is what is that other country thinking in you know international relations? How, how do you how do you navigate this through countries, through governments, and so on and so forth? So, yeah, I mean it's it's just oh and and communication specialists as well. So, yeah, he's giving a wink and a nod to the public affairs folks that are singing the drum, making sure Chirac doesn't say anything he's not supposed to. But let me throw them a bone. This is going to be my last question anyway, and so it'll make them smile. How much of this is available to the public? How much of this is declassified? I mean, is NGA dot gov or dot mil a good place for people to go if they want to know more about space policy is there a better place i doubt there is no they get mad at me in the back but um to me i i I love reading about this kind of stuff i'd love to do i'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to kind of dig deeper into some of these things that doesn't include just googling something so what's the best resource for people who want to think about a career or just are more interested in space policy and the future of space policy and a lot of the issues that we've talked about today. Well, I'd go beyond space policy. I'd also say space intelligence as well, right? I mean, you know, yes, uh, NGA is, is, is investing more resources to develop, uh, you know, NGA amongst many of the intelligence communities um, are investing more and more resources um, to plus up our ability to do space intelligence because there's just more that we need to focus on. So, yes, it's a great place to go work at NGA for space intelligence career field. Um, uh, like I said, if you want to live in the Midwest, NASIC's a great place to go. There's, it's, uh, it's around the country, actually. Um, so, and with respect to NGA, um, you know, one of the beautiful things that we have is a great intern program where people can come in and, you know, they can test us out, we can test them out. And we're hiring a couple that interned with us last year. And so that's a great place to go. With respect to space policy, um, there is almost an event a week, if not more, in the D.C. area. Uh, think tanks, and I don't want to give away any specific ones because then I'm probably going to get a bunch of emails. How come you didn't right, mention you didn't me? Say us. You exactly. Said that, right? But but you know, I mean, there's think tanks. You can actually get a master's of space policy if you wanted to uh, around here. Well, I was going to ask about degrees. I mean, is this like most of the other IC jobs now, where it used to be a couple, but now everything applies? I mean, the same basic idea of if you're interested in this field yet you really want to be a historian or you're interested in this field you want to be a political scientist or you want to do IR or you want to do other things it seems like there's a job across the board even in, a, in a, some, an organization like NGA which you would think would be all kind of science and technology and STEM people but there's people across the board 
you know, depending on, uh, you know, if you want to work at NGA uh, in any field that you decide to major in. I think it's true. I mean, I'll speak on behalf of NGA, but this is probably true for most intelligence organizations and most, yeah, most intelligence organizations. You can come in there and say, yeah, I want to do, uh, you know, space intel until you look down at your, your, you know, two cubes down and that guy's doing, you know, you know, you know, North Korean nukes or something like that. Like that seems interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know what? Do a few years, learn your trade craft, and you can move over here. Well, now I want to do international relations. You can move over there. So just within each intelligence ecosystem, you have the ability to move as, 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 as it expresses, as your interest you know, grows, as your exposure to capabilities uh, grow. Um, but you know, the fact is, is, even in the intelligence community, they have a program called the Joint Duty Assignment. So I can go as an NGA officer, and I can go work at you know, NSA for two years, or I can go work in the Office of Secretary of Defense for a few years to get a broadening skill, whether as another intelligence organization or a customer of intelligence. So when they come back to NGA after two or three years, I have the, you know, I'm, I'm just that much more well-rounded, mm-hmm. right? So it's a lot of flexibility to move in the community. But again, on the space policy side of things, I mean, just, you know, look what's being spoken on the Hill, um, you know, events around the D.C. area, particularly also in Colorado, Colorado Springs, there's a lot of uh, activity going on as well. But, um, you know, there's, if you look, you don't have to look hard enough because there's it's plenty out there, but uh, there is enough out there um, for enough people. And to your point about skill sets, yeah, it's not just um, GIS majors anymore, geospatial information system majors. Again, it's, it's political scientists, inter- international relations folks, communications, even artists. Um, you know, there is a, there is a need for all the all, all the different skill craft, and you just need to be able to find the right place and the right person to kind of move you into that in that world. Shrak Parikh is the deputy director for counterproliferation at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Uh, he's been very gracious to join us today, Shrak. Thank you for taking time to talk to us here at Spycast. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much.